0: I'm Rana el Kalyubi, co-founder and CEO of Affectiva. We're an MIT spin-off on a mission to humanize technology. There was this voice in my head that kept saying, oh, you can't do it, you're not ready. And once I overcame that voice, it was a lot easier to convince everybody around me, including the board. I would say, trust yourself, put more trust in yourself. I think women have very high standards and very high bars in general. They don't need to be that high.
1: This is Secrets of Wealthy Women from the Wall Street Journal. Helping women empower themselves financially. Now, Veronica Dagger.
2: Rana L. Kalyubi is co-founder of Affectiva. She talks about the unique challenges she faces from often being the only woman in the room and how other women can break free of cultural norms and follow her lead. So Rana, soon after 9-11, you went to Cambridge in England to get your doctorate and your parents were nervous. Would you tell us about that?
0: Yeah, I'm um, originally from Egypt. I grew up in the Middle East. I'm Muslim. And so right after 9-11, I was getting ready to move to Cambridge to do my PhD in computer science there. And that was going to be my first kind of living abroad experience. And my parents were convinced that a third world war was going to happen and that I was going to get targeted because I was a Muslim woman. At the time, I actually wore a hijab, so I was very clearly and visibly Muslim. Uh, But, you know, at the end of the day, they let me make my decision, and I did end up going to Cambridge and— you know, I like to say I use my smile as a, as, a, as a way to disarm people, my own way of saying, hey, I come in
2: peace. <laughs> Did you encounter any anti-Muslim sentiment over there or in the U.S.?
0: I, I never have. I've been very fortunate in that everybody I've ever interacted with. Um, um, I've been very welcoming and, and very hospitable. I think there's a lot of misunderstanding around um, Islam as a religion, and, I, I, and, and also Egypt as a country too. Uh, so I think of myself as an ambassador uh, to both.
2: What do you feel are the two
0: biggest misunderstandings about Islam and Egypt? Um, I'd say there's a lot of misunderstanding ar- around the role of women uh, in, in general. And and also there's there's no one Egypt or no one Islam, right? There's a lot of ways it manifests. So for instance, I come from um, a family that really prioritizes the education of, of young women. Um, I have two younger sisters, and uh, my parents very gratefully invested in our education, uh, but that's not the case with a lot of, um, you know, Egyptian and, and Muslim families. So we were lucky that way.
2: You spoke of your decision to um, no longer wear the hijab. Can you talk about that and what went into that?
0: Yeah, it was a combination of, um, so I wore the hijab for 12 years, um, and, I, and I actually decided to put it on, it was my own personal decision, um, which is, again, another myth. I think there's this belief that women are forced to wear the hijab. This might be true in some societies, but in my family, it was my own personal decision. Um, and so when I put it on, it made a lot of sense. I was pretty religious at the time. Um, but then over the years, uh, for a combination of both personal but also just what was happening around uh, around me um, in Egypt, but also across the world, I felt like um, it didn't make s- it wasn't me anymore. Um, and it was a tough decision to take it off because a lot of people. Um, You know, including my family members were actually against me doing that. Um, But I always tell people it's the same me, whether I'm wearing it or not. It's my same personality, same core beliefs. And I felt like that mattered more. Um, than the decision to wear it or not.
2: You said your education and career path is unusual for an Egyptian Muslim married woman. Can you elaborate on that?
0: Yeah. I studied computer science as, as an undergrad um, at the American University in Cairo. And after I graduated, I got a scholarship to go do my Ph.D. at Cambridge University. At the same time, I was getting married. And so, you know, a good Egyptian wife would basically follow her husband um, but I had this opportunity to leave, you know, to leave Cairo and and go to Cambridge. And my husband at the time, he's my ex now, uh, but at the time he had a company that he ran in Cairo, so he couldn't really move with me to Cambridge. And both my parents were c- quite skeptical. I mean, they had always supported my education, um, but they really weren't on board with this idea of me traveling abroad to do my PhD and leaving my husband behind. Um, so I think it really made me a misfit <laughs> by Egyptian standards. Uh, but I guess I was driven by this mission to really redefine technology and how we interact with it. And that was, um, yeah, that was this intrinsic motivation that made me do it anyways.
2: What's your advice for women who want to do something different than cultural norms?
0: Um I, I really think it's kind of interesting because now that I've done it, I know a lot of young Egyptian, but also like just across the world, women who will come to me and say, you know, I'm engaged. Do you think I can also do my master's at the same time? And I'm like, yes, you can. You go, girl. Right. So I think we need more role models and examples that show that it can be done, that it's doable. Um, so, so my advice is to find supporters, Like, even if you just have one champion uh, who will will support you through the journey or the process, I think that's very important. You'll run into a lot of naysayers, uh, and the trick is to listen politely, but just move on. Not take that feedback seriously, or? Yeah, I also actually found that I'm often my harshest critique. Um, um, There was one example later on after we had started the company and I was the chief technology officer at the time, and I had the opportunity to step into the CEO position. And, and I, I just had so many, like there was this voice in my head that kept saying, oh, you can't do it. You're not ready. And once I overcame that voice, it was a lot easier to convince everybody around me, including the board. I would say trust yourself. Put more trust in yourself. I think women have very high standards and very high bars in general. They don't need to be that high. That's interesting that it was easier to convince
2: other people you were up for the job once you yourself was convinced on it. How, how come?
0: Because I think people saw it, but no, you know, our board saw it. I mean, this was my technology. I had a lot of experience building it, but also marketing it. Um, I'm obviously extremely passionate about the company and the technology. So I check all the boxes. I was already kind of the face of the company, you know, on stage talking about the technology, um, but I had never done it before. Right, I was never CEO before and I think there was this part of my brain that just kept doubting that I could you know, step up and get this done. Um, but first-time CEOs do it all the time, right? <laughs> um, so I, I think once I convinced myself and I kind of built some internal confidence to take this to our board, it was,
2: it was straightforward. You're a tech entrepreneur in the artificial intelligence space. Would you explain what artificial intelligence is in simple terms?
0: Yeah. Artificial intelligence is this notion that we want to simulate human intelligence with all of its aspects, Um, be it cognitive intelligence, like understanding language or doing complex computations, all the way to social and emotional intelligence, which is, of course, a key component of what makes us human. Um, I'm particularly interested in the emotional intelligence side of things, so I've spent my entire career um, trying to build artificial emotional intelligence machines and technologies that can read and understand our emotional states. Can you give an example of how something that
2: tracks emotional intelligence would be used in the real world, so to speak.
0: Oh yeah, there's a lot of applications. Um, So imagine if your um, device could understand uh, your facial expression, so it could understand if you're happy or you're sad or stressed. Imagine if that's in your car and your car could detect that you're about to fall asleep, or that you're really tired or that you're really distracted and it could intervene in real time to ensure that you are safe. That's one use case. Uh, another use case is around mental health. So, um, you know, we check our phones about, on average, 15 times an hour. I know, it's, it's, it's crazy. <laughs> it's crazy. But, but that's an opportunity to do kind of a check on a person's health and wellness. And if your device knows you really well, it has a baseline for who you are. If you start deviating from that, for instance, you start acting depressed uh, or sounding depressed, it can flag that to you or to a loved one, a partner, a doctor, and um, you know. I think this can really transform how we think about mental health and how we treat mental health if if we can design technology to be part of the solution.
2: What do you say to people who feel like that's a little too intrusive, maybe?
0: Um, absolutely. We we think a lot about. I mean, there's obviously a lot of data privacy implications. Your emotions are arguably the most private of all data, right? Um, And so it has to be designed in a very thoughtful way. There has to be, of course, consent. We're very big on that. People have to opt in to be part of technology that's emotionally intelligent. Um, But I think at the end of the day, it's going to boil down to what value are you getting in return for that? You know, if if you are getting safer cars or devices that know you better and so can help you be more productive or healthier... Um, uh, yeah to me at the end of the day it falls down to like what value are you as a user getting um, because this device is so much more emotionally intelligent.
2: What about the people who are worried that artificial intelligence is going to replace humans and human jobs?
0: I have a very strong point of view on that. Um, I believe AI is just another tool and it is really up to us people societies to define the role of that technology or that new tool. Uh, So I I tend to think of it less as a human versus AI kind of race and more as a human-machine partnership. And this partnership needs to be built on trust. It needs to be built on empathy. Um, But once we have this mutual trust, once we humans trust in AI and also build AI that's able to trust in humans, I think that will make for a very successful partnership.
2: I read your company tracked thousands of facial expressions of both men and women. So I'm wondering what's the most common facial expression women make and what's the most common facial
0: expression men make? Mm-hmm. Yeah. We, we've actually now have over 4 billion facial frames from 87 countries around the world. Um, and so we've been able to mine these for cross-cultural but also gender differences. We found that by and large women tend to be more expressive, um, but actually they tend to express more positive emotions. So women smile a lot more than men do, uh, whereas men tend to do a brow furrow, which is an indicator of like, you know, anger or kind of um, more of a negative expression. Um, we, We tended to see that a lot more in men than we did in women. So that was interesting.
2: Coming up, Rana el Kalyubi talks about what's next for artificial intelligence and the exciting new fields that lie ahead for women.
1: This message comes from Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, destination-focused dining, and cultural enrichment on board and on shore. And every Viking voyage is all-inclusive, with no children and no casinos. Discover more at viking.com. You're listening to Secrets of Wealthy Women from the Wall Street Journal.
2: How have you handled being the only woman in the room, especially in tech?
0: Yeah, that happens a lot. <laughs> uh, especially, actually, we are in the middle of a fundraise, and I've had to pitch to a lot of investors. And uh, you know, in over thirty meetings, there's only been a couple of women who are in the room, uh, other than myself. Um, it's it's definitely tough. I think I, I I kind of go back to like I'm a domain expert. I've been doing this for many many years. Um, and I and I just kind of, you know, focus on that. Focus on the facts, focus on being objective, focus on knowing the technology really well, um, being passionate and evangelizing the future of, of the world with this type of technology. Um, and you know, that resonates with some people and, and it doesn't with others, and that's fine.
2: You said the mood of the room changes the mood of a room of investors change when you bring in your company as male chairman. Can you elaborate on that?
0: So usually uh, when we do these investment pitches, it's um, myself with with one of my colleagues. Uh, But this particular time, um, I was accompanied by our chairman, who is an older white guy. He's very immersed in the investment community. Um, And I was really struck by how the meeting started. So usually when it's just me and and my colleague, the meeting's very formal. We kind of, you know, we kind of go through the slides and the pitch, and it's just, like, very professional and formal. Um, But with our chairman in the room, um, he knew the guys. They had common friends. They talked about, like, so-and-so just got married to this younger woman, and -and so-and-so just, like, you know, bought this thing. Um, And it just made me realize that a lot of this falls down to um, the network. Who do you know? Um, b- because investment is about minimizing risk. And so if you're a known commodity uh, and there's history and there's a relationship, that builds trust, which minimizes risk. But when I show up in the room, I have really little c- in common with a lot of these investors, and I'm not part of the same social network. I think that makes it a harder, a much harder decision for, for these investors. Um, and so as a result, uh, I've been very proactive about getting women investors and women founders in the same room and and getting us to talk together and build that network. I think women need to support each other. Do you think that's the reason women
2: have a tougher time getting funding for their businesses?
0: I think so. I think part of it is that you are not plugged into that network of professionals who've gone to college together, they've worked together. It's funny because we've been comparing how women go about these pitches versus men. Um, and, and I'm generalizing. I'm sure that there's expe- exceptions to that. But you know, when I'm presenting a financial model, I'm hedging it, right? Because it, at the end of the day, there's some assumptions. They might come true and they may not. And I, and I kind of try to acknowledge that because I want to be data-driven. Um, I know that a lot of men don't do that. They'll just like paint this incredible vision of the future and they don't hedge at all. Uh, so I think in a way that that might be hurting how women pitch to investors as well.
2: You brought your son to investor meetings, I read. What was that like? Oh
0: no, right. <laughs> yeah. So when I uh, we were we were starting the company and raising the initial round of funding when I had my second son, my second uh, kid, Adam. And um I, I felt adamant that I wanted to, you know, get the company off the ground, and so it so happened that we were doing the Sandhill investment, you know, roadshow, um, and I would bring Adam in a car seat, park him outside the investment meeting room, <laughs> and kind of pray to the universe that he doesn't really peep or cry or anything. Um, and I'd often actually ask. The, you know, the secretary who was at, sitting outside I was like, can you please take care of him until I get this meeting done? Um, it was definitely awkward, but we were able to raise money anyhow at the end of the day, which is good.
2: What's your advice to other women who are trying to balance having their own company and also having a family?
0: I, I think you have to, at the end of the day, do what feels right for you. Um, and, and I hope that women feel empowered to make these decisions, whether they decide to stay at home and have kids and then go back to work or do it both in parallel. I think there is a way to do it in parallel. So when I was a Ph.D. student, uh, the initial plan was that I wouldn't get pregnant until I was done. But then by the end of the first year, I did get pregnant. And I, w- I, was, I was quite afraid that that would be the end of my dream of getting a Ph.D., done um, but actually what ended up happening is that it really focused me like getting pregnant and having um, my my daughter just made me super focused so I get to the lab I would get my work done because I wanted to go back home and spend some time with with my baby um, so I think in a way it ended up being very positive um, so I would encourage women to, to do what feels right and not shy away from um, you know, from, from, from trying to do both.
2: What's the biggest lesson you've learned as a tech entrepreneur?
0: Um, I'll, I'll go back to this believe more in yourself and su- support, you know, support yourself with people who are cheerleaders um, because at some point it's going to get hard and um, there will be a lot of skeptics and, and people who doubt what you're building makes sense so that you're ever gonna get it off the ground or, or that you'll ever going to be able to raise money um, there's a lot of that and I and I would just encourage women to find a handful of men or women who who can give you honest advice um, and 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 just give you that extra nudge when you need it what's next for you what's your next big goal ooh Um... I mean, there's a lot to be done uh, with the, with our technology. I really believe that we are reimagining how human computer interfaces will look like in the next few years, and um, there's a lot of applications for that. I'm especially excited about the work we're doing in automotive, bringing this technology to ensure safe, safer driving experiences. Um, but I'm also really, really excited about the applications around mental health, and I, I hope I'd love for us to kind of tackle that problem in a really big way.
2: And how much are you trying to raise and what time frame are you trying to raise it
0: in? So we are raising somewhere between 20 to $30 million, uh, hopefully in the next few months. So it's uh, well underway. We're making progress. And fingers crossed. (laughs) Fingers crossed. How do you figure out how much you need? Oh, that was a whole exercise where we uh, um, kind of went. We we started with what goals and milestones do we want to hit in the next three years, including getting to cash flow positive, and then we worked our way backwards, uh, trying to estimate, um, you know, what kind of growth and investment do we need for the company. A lot of the funding will go into expanding our research and development team so that we can build more emotion AI technology, um, but also data. So data is a I mean, it's a real competitive advantage and uh, we're um, planning to you know, really scale up our data acquisition strategy. What's the best personal finance advice you've ever received? Being very purposeful about your financial goals was very helpful. So I started, you know, I started tracking not just where I was spending my money, but also I had very clear goals on what, what I wanted to do. So when I first moved to the U.S., my first goal was to buy a house and that was big for me because I I'd never been financially independent. Um but but I put that as a goal and I worked towards it, got that done and 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 have progressed from there. What words of inspiration do you have for single moms? Um you know, get get yourself to a happy place. That's really, really key. Work on yourself first. It's like it's like when you're, you know, when you're on a flight and they tell you like you have to put the oxygen mask on yourself first before you can put it on other people. I think that's so true. Um, so I- ensure that you're taking care of yourself, whether it's exercise or sleeping well, or just making time to decompress. Um, and, and then that's going to that's gonna flow to your kids and your work. Um, emotions are very contagious. It's, um, so if you think about it that way, if you're positive, then you're, then you're spreading this positive energy around you. But if you're constantly depressed and beating yourself up, that's just going to also you know, be the energy you're spreading out. Has um, your research shown that? There's been a lot of studies around how emotions are contagious.
1: Time now for your secrets.
0: I'm Rana El and my money secret is planning ahead.
2: This episode was produced by Tanya Bustos. John Wardock is the executive producer of WSJ Podcasts. I'm Veronica Dagger. Thanks for listening.
1: What's your secret? Let us know. Write podcasts at DowJones.com or on Twitter. Use hashtag SecretsOfWealthyWomen.